It's going to be so funny when he's like, uh, we're going to be in like 2024 and being like, uh, unforeseen, a Brady decline at 47. Greetings and welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 17th, 2021. My name is Neil Payne. I'm a senior sports writer at 538. I'm out here in Pennsylvania as usual, and joining me from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Neil. How are you? Good to see you. I'm good. How are you? It's been a while. It has been a while, hasn't it? I think we we have not been uh, present together on an episode in three, three episodes, I think. I know. I mean, you know, we're like we're like a baseball team. We're all its significant players injured. I, I can't imagine what team you're making a reference to. Who, who could I be talking about? I mean, actually, I could be talking about half the teams. But there's a lot of teams out there. Yeah. Well, we will talk about the team that I uh, that you and I both know who you're talking about in a second. Just wanted to say, Sarah Ziegler, our uh, steadfast host, she's taking a well-deserved vacation right now, but she will be back in two weeks, and uh, I think uh, we should expect her to know everything about the players, the team, everything with the Seattle Kraken by the time she's back, right, Jeff? I know. That's the, I mean, that's the expectation. We're yeah. setting the bar as biggest Kraken, Kraken fan east of the Mississippi. That, that's Sarah's <laughs> new title. Uh, yeah, excited to see uh, that come together because that is happening like the NHL season is happening sooner than we think. All of these seasons, um, you know, because they start, they ended the previous season much later than usual. They're going to be trying to start uh, in some reasonable facsimile of a normal time. And so, yeah, short off season, but but not much time for Sarah to cram and, and prep for this new team. Uh, yeah, I also, you know, going ahead, uh, looking at what's going on in sports, just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Carly Lloyd. She announced that she was retiring um, yesterday, uh, really marking, you know, one of the signposts for sort of the end of the era of, of this great U.S. women's national team uh, that we've seen uh, won, you know, multiple World Cups, uh, one of the all-time leading scorers, all-time leaders in wins played also on the U.S. women's national team, uh, especially in the World Cup. So shout out to her. Uh, I, I have always wanted her to try to latch on in a second career as an NFL place kicker, so maybe she'll have time for that uh, at, at some point. We know she can do it. We've seen the videos of her. I think it was at Eagles camp uh, a few years ago, so, so maybe she'll be able to do that. On today's show... We're going to talk about the NL East, we're going to talk about the Mets, we're going to talk about the Phillies and the Braves uh, and and unpack all that situation that uh, has gotten really interesting. It's going to be one of the the really interesting races uh, in in maybe a season where most of the division races in the the playoff picture is settled by now uh, over the rest of the season. Then we're going to take a look at the NFL, which again, just like Speaking of uh, seasons that are starting sooner than than you might uh, feel in your heart of hearts, the NFL preseason is upon us, and the regular season is going to start really soon. So we're going to go over our early set of predictions for the season, which we also already have. We've run the numbers on those. Our our, uh, our colleague Jay Boyce has run those. And then finally, we're going to talk with Greg Larson, who's the author of the book Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir about how baseball works outside the major league level. So as I alluded to, things are getting really interesting in baseball. Okay, maybe not most of baseball. Really, there are only a couple of competitive divisions at this point, but arguably the most competitive one is the three-way race in the NL East between the Atlanta Braves, the New York Mets, and the Philadelphia Phillies. Whoever loses will almost certainly not make the postseason at all because of that whole NL West situation with the Giants, Dodgers, and Padres. So on ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser they downplayed the stakes of winning the division or anything else in MLB, though, when compared with the return of Fernando Tatis Jr. to those Padres, particularly because of Philly's schedule. See them if you want. I don't care about Cincinnati. You know I hate St. Louis. And I don't care about Philly, even though they got your boy Harp. I want to Philly's see good. Tatis. You know, I have faith. I don't have any Philly's faith. Philly's good. Philly's schedule, their last amount of games nobody. is so easy. Yeah. They should win 30 of 40. Yeah. So 
Jeff, do you think Philly's schedule is easy enough to edge out the Braves and the Mets and that we're sort of talking about this division as being uh, more interesting than it actually is? Or is this division actually a, as tight of a race as it seems right now? I think, yeah. I mean, I think the, the I don't generally like to read too much into strength of schedule, especially in baseball. Yeah. Um, I think the Braves also, if I correct me if I'm wrong, have a fairly easy schedule, a comparably easy schedule as well. So I, I don't know if that'll be the decisive factor. I think, you know, like a lot of things in baseball, it'll probably come down to health. Um, it'll probably come down to pitching. Obviously, you know, with Philly, it's a strange season for pitching because they're getting this incredible season from Zach Wheeler, which as a Met fan, man, does that sting? I mean, Zach Wheeler might win that Cy Young, all that talk about DeGrom and, and look at what's look what's going to happen with the former Met pitcher. Well, some member of the 2010s Mets pitching staff probably will yes. win Cy Young. That's, that's something we can say. Yes. That being said, they're getting a terrible season on Aaron Nola. And I don't know if that's going to if that ship's going to write the course. So, you know, they have some injuries. They have some players that they need to get back, Hoskins and such. Um, so I think it'll come down to that. But I, I think it's actually going to be really comparative, uh, competitive. And, and the thing that's interesting is that with what the Nationals did at the deadline, they've sort of become a very easy part of that schedule and and the marlins were already pretty easy unless you're the mets um and frankly i think the mets are, are pretty easy so i i do think it's going to be really interesting and i i think right now i i i can't say that like the the margins are going to be decided because of philly's schedule because you know we know on a like game in week out series out basis like it it often doesn't matter in baseball yeah and divisions you know having so much cross uh, play, you know, in terms of common schedules and all that, uh, it, it's tough to really separate yourself from the rest. But, you know, I'm really fascinated just by the arc of this division this season, because, you know, the Mets, obviously, with great fanfare uh, to start the season, you're, you're breaking in Francisco Lindor, you're breaking in a few other um, new acquisitions, and then the team gets out to a good start. Uh, and, and really, also is aided by the fact that the Braves and Phillies sort of limped along early in the season. Uh, and the Mets just have this sort of lead that they've kind of, that they kept early on uh, throughout most of the first half. Uh, and I think when we did our redraft at uh, mid season, uh, I, you dropped the Phillies, right? And that I had dumb. the Braves. I had the Braves. Well, I dropped the Braves, which was dumb. I picked up the Phillies uh, because my rationale was with Ronald Acuna Jr. out for the season with an ACL uh, tear that, you know, the the Phillies looked primed to kind of pick things up. And the Braves certainly did not seem poised to make a run or perhaps uh, the thinking at that time was that they would join, uh, do a little bit of what Washington did and maybe be a seller at the trade deadline, not a buyer. But in fact, they they went all in. They picked up some guys to try to replace uh, Acuna's production. Uh, and those guys have actually been really good. Like Jock Peterson has hit really well since joining the Braves. They've been one of the hottest teams, if not the hottest team in baseball over the past two weeks uh, without their best player. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that has really sort of thrown things for a loop, I think, in this division compared with what we were expecting um, uh, less than a month ago. Uh, and then, yeah, Philly has gone on. On uh, a run, certainly, and then the Mets have just been one of the coldest teams in baseball over the past month. Uh, so, so what do you think accounts for the Mets just never really asserting? Is it just the Mets being the Mets? You know, like the fact that this team always seems like it is never the sum of its parts. Yeah, I think this might be the more most extreme case we've seen of that because you know, with the new ownership with Cohen there and a real like willingness to spend. Um, to go out and get Baez, to to get Lindor and, you know, make these sort of big moves that we really have, have not seen so much in the uh, the uh, Wilpon, uh, I guess I can't say Bernie Madoff uh 
struggles, but I just said it anyway. Uh, the penny pinching that people associate the Wilpon. <laughs> they don't like. Regime. They don't like it when we say that. But whatever, they don't own the teams anymore, so I can say it. Um, the um, the there was always a little handcuffed. You know, it was kind of like one foot in, one foot out. It always felt. Um, but with this team, I actually I, I can't even explain it. I mean, you just have underperforming players top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that maybe this also just speaks to exactly how reliant the team was on Jacob deGrom, where uh, I, I, I think we all kind of knew how much he was carrying the team conceptually, sort of. But to see since he got hurt. Uh, there was a stat that they put up on the broadcast last night uh, in the last 35 games. Uh, so since DeGrom was injured, uh, the, the Mets starters have a 5.24 ERA. They've only lasted for 4.4 innings per start. Uh, and they have a grand total of three wins. So like uh, pitcher wins, you know, so the team itself is 14 and 21 over that span. But the starters themselves only have recorded three of those 14 wins. So I think that that really hammers home just how much uh, the team needed DeGrom to go out there every fifth day and spin these incredible performances. And he was on track for one of the best seasons by a pitcher that we'd seen uh, in history. I mean, he's still, uh, you know, his numbers when it's all said and done will be eye popping. Um, But the fact that he's missed so much of the the second half uh, is really crippling to this team. And then you have, on the other hand, you know, we should talk about Philly. We should talk about Bryce Harper, you know, going on a run and, and playing like an MVP, uh, which I think is kind of funny because uh, he's he's playing at roughly the same level he had been the past few seasons. I think there was this perception because of the contract he signed, because of joining Philly and all of the expectations there and the fact that they had this long playoff drought and he hasn't seemed to really been able to um, – power them out of that that oh he's been disappointing and now he's having this uh, you know amazing breakout year he's playing at the same level he has been playing at and it's it's uh, you know time to maybe reappraise him and start appreciating appreciating how good he has been um really since signing that contract for them but um yeah, the, the, I think they're another team that has consistently been less than the sum of their parts. Maybe the difference this season is they're getting more out of those parts, whereas the Mets just continue to not be able to really have, like you said, Jeff, have guys overperform or meet expectations at a bare minimum all at the same time in the same season, which maybe uh, we, we don't give enough credit to uh, as an ingredient for a team doing well. And, and you think about teams that consistently make the playoffs, teams that are consistently contending. Uh, one of the secrets to that is, yeah, your guys don't tend to have down years or when some guys have down years, other guys pick them up. Uh, and and as sabermetricians, maybe we put a lot of like stock into the idea that, oh, that's those are random fluctuations. It doesn't have anything to do with the manager or the organization or, you know, the, the coaching staff or training staff or anything like that. But then you look at a team like the Mets, and they might be they they, they might be proving that case by the absence of that um, cons- consistency and and sort of ability to uh, outplay expectations uh, and and avoid down years. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for just playing the way you're supposed to be playing, like JT Realmuto, Rice Hoskins, Gene Segura, like even Andrew McCutcheon. Like they're 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 playing at the level they normally play, and that's good enough. I mean, that's why they, you know, that was the roster they assembled in. Um, you get a little bit of an overperformance here and there, and that, that often is enough and it can make up for some of the deficiencies, whether, you know, whoever is, you know, maybe having a little bit of a down year or, you know, Alex Baum hasn't been the player they might've thought he was going to be coming into this season, um, which was like, you know, the, the anchor in the middle of the lineup after, after uh, Harper. Um, and, and like I said, with a case like Wheeler stepping up and we always know like Wheeler was a good pitcher getting a career year from Wheeler and someone like that, like that's going to make up for a, a down year from Nola and, and then getting, you know, Kyle Gibson, I think was a really smart move um, to kind of round out that rotation. I, I think they're just, they're just a better team on paper. Now with the case with the Braves, I think they're really interesting because, you know, it, it's not just Acuna. Um, you know, you remember uh, Mike Soroka was supposed to be their ace and he hasn't really 
pitched at all. So he Acuna is not the only injury that you well, know. That, that's a team Marcel, that lost their best. Yeah, and, and Azuna. That was, Azuna. Yeah. So yeah. that's a team that lost not just their best hitter. They lost probably their best hitter and one of their top three hitters. Maybe Albies is is number two. Freeman and. Or for, oh yeah, of course, Freeman. Um, and then losing who was supposed to be their ace. Um, and they went out and, and basically got an entire new outfield um, yep. at the trade deadline. It, it usually doesn't work, but uh, kudos to them. I mean, t- to see that work, it shows you can. It shows it really is a lesson of what you can do at the deadline if you're aggressive. Yeah, and, and that's another case of guys that maybe underperformed in the first half regressing back to their previous performance like Freeman was playing below his MVP level for sure and and he's been a lot better recently Albie's the same way Dansby Swanson one of our uh favorites uh for going back uh when when we um wrote about him years ago uh, he was not the player that he was um last year in the first half of this year and now he's been on a real tear he had a great game the other night even uh Austin Riley having kind of a breakout so yeah they've they've kind of had you know at least those like we were saying compensating great seasons or over performances especially you know split out by half of uh, of the season to to account you know offset for um injuries and absences that they have elsewhere so yeah and, and for what it's worth right now you know our model uh our elo model it knows about starting pitchers on a team it knows about the rotation so you know something like De- jacob Degrom's injury and sort of the met situation there is baked into the model. It doesn't know about Ronald Acuna being out or, you know, Francisco Lindor being in and out of the lineup uh, to the extent that that even matters. Putting that caveat aside, though, it thinks that the Braves have a 64% chance of winning the division, uh, Phillies at 29%, and Mets at just 7%. What do you think about that, Jeff? Do you think that sounds right? I, I would I would think the Phillies are probably undervalued a little bit there, you know, yeah. factoring some of those things we were talking about, uh, particularly the schedule. I mean, you look at what the Mets have ahead. I mean, they already lost one to San Francisco. They got, I think, a couple more of San Francisco, and then they're going to the Dodgers. I mean, yeah. this team, it, it could be a week from now, and this team is five, six games below 500. Um, so I honestly think the 7% sounds right. That being said, you know, sometimes when someone starts hitting, it can get contagious, and we know the talent's there. So it's not beyond hope. I'm obviously being super pessimistic, but I've just been sort of unimpressed by this team, even when they were like in first place by, uh, you know, five games or six games, whenever as high as it got it, I I never really felt for real. So that kind of sounds about right. And it's interesting, you know, with it, you go back to May when they, the Mets fired their hitting coach, Chili Davis, which felt like, I guess, the right move at the time because they weren't hitting at all. And it certainly didn't get any better with that I was going to say, if anything, it may have gotten worse uh, recently. So So maybe he wasn't the problem. uh, Yeah, I don't think he was the problem. And actually, I sort of wonder, you know, because I know he was a popular guy, whether it could have been, because we've seen this with teams, seen this with the Mets, where, you know, kind of you have a team slump and then they kind of team resurgence. And we just haven't had that. We keep waiting for it. And, uh... I don't think it's coming. Yeah, there's still time left for certain. Certainly, I think um, given the guys that are back, they they probably should be hitting better than they have been. So maybe that's an area of uh, positive regression. And then, uh, you know, in terms of the pitching, yeah, Degrom having another setback is is kind of devastating for the Mets um, at this point. So yeah, I think that that seven percent chance sounds right. And I, I'm with you, Jeff. I think maybe the Phillies are a little bit undervalued there, and maybe the Braves are a little bit overvalued but seeing how they've played recently I mean you know there's no denying that they seem to have uh really kind of clicked and uh a lot of the pieces that weren't performing I mean you got to remember this team has won this division you know three years running before this so you know they were the the favorites on paper kind of coming in barring the you know maybe you could have made the case for the Mets based on their um their expenditures and all the the flashy new guys that they brought in but 
you know, the Braves are the defending division champs, and so they're kind of playing like that again. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, is it too late to swap the Braves back in for the Phillies? That's my question oh. with our draft. No, I, I don't, I'm not going to do that, especially with Sarah in, in absentia. Uh, but that, that could end up looking like a bad move. And, and like we said at the, um, at the top of the segment, you know, the, the difference between the Braves and all of these teams, uh, playoff odds and their division odds are like two, three percentage points uh, at most because the, the odds of making the playoffs while not winning this division are pretty slim given the record that the the runner-up in this division is likely to have compared with the uh, the record that the second or third runner uh, you know second runner-up I guess in the um, uh, in the NL West is going to have and don't sleep on the Cincinnati Reds also think about them in that uh, coming up in that central uh, division they're probably going to have a better record than the team that wins the NL East as well so you know it's it's a tough year to try to sneak into the playoffs out of that division if you don't act Actually win it, and honestly, like I don't really see any of, uh, any of these NL East teams doing much when they get to the playoffs, um, just because of the how they line up. Just from a pure pitching standpoint, I mean, if you're Philly, if Phillies, and once you get past Wheeler, I mean, you're going to win a playoff series against some of these opponents. You're going to win a playoff series against the Dodgers or a team like. Uh, San Diego, it, it, it just doesn't, it, it may all be moot. It's just a bad division at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on the rest of the season there. And uh, yeah, we'll see if uh, any of the teams we took, because you have the Mets from our, uh, our World Series draft at the beginning of the year. I have uh, the Phillies. No one has the Braves. Uh, I, I punted on them, uh, perhaps foolishly. So we'll, we'll keep track of how that shakes out over the rest of the year. But uh, for right now, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back in a moment to talk about football. Well, we've had one round of NFL preseason games, which means all sorts of pronouncements have been made about which rookie quarterbacks are starting, how good their whole careers are going to be on the basis of uh, those early returns. It was a positive day for most of the big draft picks with Trey Lance throwing a really beautiful 80-yard pass, Justin Fields looking really good looking in rhythm, and uh, Mac Jones even looked pretty comfortable with the Patriots system. Uh, But Zach Wilson of your New York Jets had a very competent debut as well. But on the KJZ show, Keyshawn Johnson and Alan Hahn argued about whether or not we should be paying attention to Wilson at all this year. They're basically punting on the season, okay, getting guys ready for the future. That's what they're doing. They want guys to be ready tomorrow, not today. And that's okay. If that's their mindset, if that's where they want to be, you want them to be playoff contenders with Buffalo and New England right now. Their their roster's not made up that way. No, 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 no. You got to let this young kid mature, develop. You took him second overall in the draft. Well, you're telling me Justin Fields should start for the Bears, who could be a playoff team. But I'm hearing that Trey Lance Khalil, could there, play for the 49ers. Is there, is there a Khalil Mack on this for the Jets? CJ Mosley's pretty good. Is there a Khalil Mack on the defense? It's a simple question, yes or no. Well, no, of course not. Okay, so they're not ready yet. Chicago's ready. So, Jeff, did you take away anything from Wilson's debut, or uh, are those guys right and we really shouldn't infer anything about the Jets at all until they've had a chance, uh, a few offseasons, to build a more robust roster around him? Well, I, I think we can infer something about the player himself. I mean, the the team is another story. I don't think this team is even positioning themselves to be super competitive. You, you go back to the NFL draft, and it was like, what? Where the? You know how they do like teams' needs. The Jets' needs were quarterback wide receiver, running back, offensive line, interior offensive line, cornerback, edge rusher. It was essentially everything. A whole whole different team. Everything. You know, we've got maybe one good tackle 
and a decent safety and maybe a linebacker. That's it. That's all we got. So, like, you know, you can't expect the team to, uh, I think, put it all together overnight. But it all starts with the quarterback. You know, I don't like to read too much in the preseason. I thought he looked competent. I thought he looked like a player that it wasn't like the game was moving, you know, super fast. Granted, he was out there against uh, what was really the the Giants, uh, their twos, and you know the the Jets full ones were playing. So he should look good, even as a rookie, or not good, but um, he should look okay. I mean, it was a pretty conservative game script they gave him. They wasn't asking him to do a lot, but but he looked he looked fine. Yeah, it's so silly. It's so silly to to make you know snap judgments. I know that uh, you know we all love football. We all love having something to talk about. Need something to talk about. So we we make these assessments. Uh, I mean, right now the the NFL preseason leader in passing yards is Nathan Peterman. So I think that's, that, that's <laughs> case that closed. says what, yeah that that sort of you know keep let's keep things in perspective. Um, but uh, you know it, it was nice to see the rookies kind of come out. There are probably like. I, I, this probably just comes from so many first round draft pick quarterbacks. And, and we talked about that around the draft, but there do seem to be more of those kind of position battles or that uncertainty about, you know, uh, whether a pretty good veteran is going to end up seeding the job over to one of these rookies um, sooner or later. And yeah, I like that. Uh, I have a big eye on, on Trey Lance because I do think that he's in this like perfect situation. And we may have talked about this as well uh, previously about how, you know, quarterbacks, one of the reasons they're so difficult to predict is because they often end up in bad situations. Like Trevor Lawrence is going into a Jacksonville roster that is really bereft of talent around him. So it's going to be a while before um, he can really do anything with it. Uh, and so really those guys that are drafted later uh, in the first round and end up falling to a team that has good parts around them, like the 49ers uh, have to offer Trey Lance, that's kind of the most ideal situation to be in as a rookie quarterback. You can kind of step in uh, uh, much sooner and be surrounded by players that can help you much sooner and look better as a result. And, and, and I think in, in a lot of ways, going back to the, the Jets for a second here, Sam Darnold's the, the poster child for that because that, that was a player that that really I, – I can't think of a worse hand. Maybe, maybe – um, David Carr on, on the expansion Texans where he, he got sacked like he sacked what, four, like 60 times, 45 <laughs> times. <laughs> in his first. Uh, that might be the only one I can think of, but a player who went into a situation um, where he had a bad offensive line, a bad scheme and no wide receivers and a bad defense too. So being asked to do a lot. Uh, it, it was kind of a perfect storm and whether he rebounds his career, you know, I, I think a lot of people love to make fun of Sam Darnold. I know that a lot of jet fans who watched him did see flashes of real talent there. So I'm fair. It's one of the things I'm actually most eager to see. Yeah. And so that'll be kind of an interesting, um, with Carolina, interesting natural experiment for the reclamation project from another draft that had a lot of really highly drafted quarterbacks. And so, you know, I'm sure some of the guys that got drafted, Maybe not Zach Wilson. Maybe We don't know what the future is, but some of the guys that got drafted this past uh, spring, they will end up as reclamation projects with some other team down the line, and we can kind of go through that experiment again and argue all over again about whether, yeah, nature or nurture for quarterbacks is kind of a big debate right now. So uh, I wanted to pivot to talk about our prediction model because that does have – it has the quarterbacks uh, loaded into it. It, it uh, has, has simulated out the season uh, and, and given all the projections and probabilities. So currently the Chiefs and the Bucks are both projected to go 12-5. and five. By the way, it's going to take a lot of time to get used to these 17-game records. Like I know. Thinking of like, I okay, I can't get my head around season. It. Well, that actually means you went 10 and seven. So that's, you know, not necessarily as, as good as it used to be. And we'll have to really reset ourselves on that. That's going to be weird. Uh, but they're both projected to go 12 and five with a 13% chance each of winning the Super Bowl. Seldom do we have sort of a dead heat at the top of the um, the odds, uh, but for right now, and these aren't the official preseason ones. We'll come out with those later, but probably not going to be that different, uh, barring some kind of injury. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of start off and ask you, 
which of those two teams uh, would you take, uh, you know, between the two Super Bowl teams from last year? Who do you think has a better shot um, uh, this year? Yeah, it's so hard. This happens every NFL season. And, and if you look back historically, it's usually what it, I, I don't know the exact number uh, or at least updated number, but it's usually about half the teams that made the playoffs only return to the playoffs. And it's very hard, I think, in this time of the year to see you know, through that, and you, you kind of just expect the teams that were good last year to be good again this year, and it's almost never the case. So it's it's kind of hard to me. Like looking at twelve and five for both those teams, it seems about right. I mean, I think the Bucks, you know, what they went through last year, where you had Brady learning this Bruce Arians offense, which was going to take some time. Uh, but once he kind of got that offense down and once they got those three receivers on the field at the same time and Godwin Evans and and then getting Antonio Brown, it looked pretty much unstoppable. And they were. Um, so it, it's hard to see that changing. But then again, I think, you know, <laughs> That looming Brady decline season is still there. I mean, we've been talking about it still, for six it's seasons. It's a ticking time bomb, right? It's, I know. It, it really but, is. <laughs> so that alone, if I'm just playing the numbers, would push me towards the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs, um, you know, it's essentially the same team. I think they've probably improved the offensive line, which certainly, based on the Super Bowl, needed improvement. I would probably lean with the Chiefs if I, if I had to pick amongst those two. But I, I, I think... The Bucks are going to be excellent. I, I don't think they're going to be a bad team this year. It's going to be so funny when he's like, uh, we're going to be in like 2024 and being like, uh, unforeseen, a Brady decline at 47. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's wild. I mean, I think that's like everyone has whatever team he's played for, whether it be the Patriots or the Bucks, people have sort of used that as a reason to take the under on them for years now. And, and it really hasn't worked. Um, maybe you could say uh, it, it worked slightly in that one down year his last year in the with the Patriots but aside from that so yeah we'll see uh, maybe at this point you just I'll believe Tom Brady declines when I see it uh so after those two we got the Bills 11 and 6 uh predicted record 9% chance of winning the Super Bowl uh, we also predict the Ravens, Rams, Packers, Seahawks, and Browns will each go ten and seven, uh, and then the Saints uh, will be nine and eight uh, in our forecast. So I thought it would be fun if we took some of these projected regular season records and uh, played some over under. Uh, we talked about the Chiefs, we talked about the Bucks, uh, but what do you think about the Bills uh, with with that number that they have? Uh, Eleven and six, nine percent chance of winning the Super Bowl. Does that sound right? Does that sound too high? I mean, is there a risk for regression? for Josh Allen and um, after that breakout, you know, season that they had last year? Or is this legitimately going to be, you know, AFC East favorite, arguable Super Bowl, you know, potential team uh, going forward? Yeah, I think that one actually I would say is about right. And if anything, I would I'd probably take the over there. I, th I think they're pretty solid. I think that offense... Um, you know, what Stefan Diggs did to that offense um, in terms of just, you know, making this this pass. I mean, they basically don't run the ball, um, but they have Josh Allen, who's who's obviously coming into a prime year. I mean, I, I wasn't a full Josh Allen believer um, going into last year, but I think I am now. And and I think the other thing they'll benefit from is it's just the fact that they play the Jets twice. And I think, frankly, they play the Patriots twice because I, I don't think this Patriots team is going to be that great. But, you know, who knows? I could be proven wrong by by Bill Belichick um, and, I guess, Mac Jones. Um, but I think that'll help. And I, I think well, they're kind of... Bel Belichick, you know, people were saying he did his best coaching job uh, of his career last season by bringing that team to, what were they, 8-8? Eight and eight, uh, or, Yeah, or and, and, and they did, you know, remember they had all those holdouts on defense um, and they're getting those guys back. So, you know, 
who knows? It's possible, but I just look at the talent around Mac Jones or Cam Newton, and I, it just doesn't seem to be there. Um, barely have any wide receivers. I guess Nelson Aguilar would be their acquisition and the two tight ends they got, but both those guys are hurt. And um, it, it, it seems like a team the Bills could handle. Um, so I, I, I'm pretty bullish on the on the on the Bills this year. I think they're they're really solid. Okay, so then what do you think about the the teams that we had in that 10 and 7, that 10 win predicted group? So you got the Ravens, the Rams, the Packers, the Browns, the Seahawks, and the 49ers. Who do you think there uh, is going to have the best season? Who has the best shot of uh, either exceeding that expectation or winning the Super Bowl or both? I think it's going to be the Browns, actually, to be honest. Um, you, I, I know you stole that's my kind thunder of with that. <laughs> uh, but look, I mean, we're, you're not, we're not the only people in this business who are high on the Browns. They're definitely True. the um, the sort of football, the football quants, the football nerds, darling. Um, I think it's just because I think their defense looks awesome. And I think they have the best offensive line. And if there's anything uh, that... Having the best offensive line and the best defense in the league, that can take you very far. They don't even need Baker Mayfield to do that much. You know, looking at our projections, and I I think generally they're they're pretty spot on, but there's this big middle section where there's about a dozen teams that are all one game off from 500, whether they're 9 and 8 or 8 and 9. And someone's going to emerge from that section. And I'm actually most curious who that is because I think you could make a case for a couple of these teams. It's interesting, by the way, that we have the Titans at – nine and eight a team that's been you know sort of ascending for the last couple of years yeah we give them a lower elo rating than the cowboys which you know they're getting dak back uh if, if yeah they can kind of stay healthy so you know the cowboys are they're a whole other thing in that division uh, they're, yeah they're and i think washington's really interesting too with fitzpatrick in that defense um you know a lot of a lot of people are really high on them and i i might be in that camp because um, that defense is exciting, and I, we've seen what Fitzpatrick can do with opportunity. And then you add in, uh, you know, Terry McLaurin and getting Curtis Samuel and getting, you know, a, a second year from Antonio Gibson, and, and they're a really interesting team to me. And then the other one I want to call out is Denver, who looked pretty solid. Um, again, I'm falling into the fallacy of reading the preseason, but. You know, Drew Locke hitting that bomb to uh, KJ Hamler, who's big star at Penn State, and Patrick Sertan having a pick six. And we know Vic Fangio can get that defense in order. But if they can get some quarterback play, they're a really interesting team because obviously they have weapons on offense. They just don't really have a quarterback. I mean, I think they were kind of holding out hope for Aaron Rodgers. But um, it, it they're interesting to me. The Vikings are also interesting. Just and we because can talk about the Vikings without Sarah here. Yeah, uh, let's freely talk about Kirk Cousins and how underrated Kirk Cousins is as the world's most average quarterback. <laughs> I'm getting off the Kirk Cousins um, bandwagon after the. Uh, I, I don't need to be vaccinated. Uh, really, I can just stay in the uh, slightly larger quarterback room, and that'll solve all of my problems uh, <laughs> this season. I would not be surprised if. Sarah's not here, but Kirk Cousins had an objectively good year last year. Now, granted, they had a horrible defense, which was very unusual for a Mike Zimmer team. Uh, that is not what you expect out of a, a, a Zimmer defense. Um, usually the way they want to win games is win on defense and then just hand the ball to Dalvin Cook and don't ask Cousins to do that much. If that defense can play better, I think they're they're certainly going to be better um, and an interesting kind of playoff threat too. But I, I, it sounds like I'm high on everyone. I mean, we we also got to find the teams that are going to underperform, you know. We'll see. And we'll see about all these teams because, um, you know, I, I uh, think that we will revisit all of these over-unders uh, as, as we go into the season. And uh, we'll do maybe a, a, another uh, segment devoted to properly previewing the season uh, as we get closer to opening week. But uh, for right now, we'll leave that there. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back in a moment to talk about the minor leagues uh, in our interview with Greg Larson. In lieu of our usual rabbit hole of the week, we are excited to be joined by Greg Larson, 
author of the book Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you. Obviously, people should read the book to get all of the fun stories that you share about your time uh, with the minor leagues. But in brief, what was your experience like in the minors? Can you tell us a little bit of an overview of, uh, of what it was like and what the book uh, is going to offer people? Yeah, of course. I was a clubhouse attendant for a single A team in the Baltimore Orioles organization, the Aberdeen Ironbirds, in the New York Penn League, which is now defunct, by the way. And as a clubhouse attendant, I was basically like the team mom. I would clean up after the guys, I would do their laundry, I would even house them in some situations, get them beer, tobacco, you know, classic mom stuff. And, um, my job basically allowed me access into this world that I grew up loving and I got to see the amazing parts of it and also some of the unsavory parts of it that are coming to light more with some of these issues around minor league baseball this summer. How steep was the learning curve for you, uh, you know, when you started doing this? Uh, was it How different was it from what you expected? Because you mentioned that you, you grew up, you know, loving baseball and sort of wanting to be around the game. Was it everything you expected or was there, were there a lot of things that you had to kind of pick up on the fly that you're surprised by? It was a shockingly alien world for me. Look, I thought that I was going to be a major leaguer one day, and then I bat .091 my senior year of high school in Elk River, Minnesota, a place where we play ice hockey and snowmobile. And then I tried out for my Division three school in college, and I got cut within 48 hours. So I realized then that my dreams of being a player were just never going to happen. But my senior year, I was I transferred to a Division One school, Winthrop University, and I was a clubby there. And in a lot of ways, this scenario in college, even at a small school in a mid-major in the Big South, the, the situation for players and in the clubhouse for the staff was way better in college than it was in minor league baseball, which was shocking to me. I mean, the food was better. The facilities were better. The the um, The fan engagement in some ways was better. And then I go to minor league baseball, professional ball. And look, Ripken Stadium was a beautiful place to play ball, but guys were living five to an apartment. Um, I was a greenhorn in charge of an entire clubhouse having no idea what I was doing. So it was a really steep, a shockingly steep learning curve for a fan. Do you think, um, I mean, it doesn't seem like baseball really totally knows what to do with minor league baseball. Uh, I mean, major league baseball. What do you think the solution is? I mean, is it fewer minor league teams? Is it um, a different type of pay structure? I mean, is there a way to sort of fix these problems? Because I imagine, you know, with the pandemic, and I saw some articles about this, that, you know, the financial toll um, for some of these players has, has, has been even worse in the last, you know, year and a half. Um, but I don't also see like a, a sort of way to rectify the problem and some of the financial problems, you know, with the players themselves and also with the clubs. Yeah, I think, oddly enough, I think that this is maybe a unpopular opinion, but I think the changes with contraction, cutting out 40 teams this year, was actually a positive thing for the players in the long term because Major League Baseball had proved that they weren't going to take care of all of those guys. Uh, you know, they were drafting uh, 48 rounds of players when I was working in the minors. Last year, they had a 20-round draft. I think that's a better structure. They get rid of 40 teams and they increase everybody's salaries. I think that's a better structure. And there's a lot of the old guard. I'm a Society for American Baseball research member. I was at a conference and I suggested a few years back that they make those changes. They should wipe out a bunch of the lower level teams because they had crap facilities, because they weren't willing to pay their players. And these guys were living on almost nothing. And everybody there pushed back on me. They said, no way is, minor league, is Major League Baseball going to contract teams. Lo and behold, that's what happens. And a big problem this year that a lot of people aren't talking about is that with the pandemic, there are no host families, which would usually take off a huge financial burden for the players. Um, local families around the minor league team, fans, people who work in the stadium, they'll just take in players. And then that gets rid of the financial burden of housing. That's not available to players this year. So that's how you get guys in the Angels organization telling stories about living in their car for a week, living seven guys to a one-bedroom apartment, this kind of stuff. 
Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of tough because I, I can see both sides of that where, you know, preserving uh, the, the dream, I guess, for a lot of guys is is um, one of the big arguments against contracting the minors. But at the same time, uh, there had been research, I think, that in recent years, sort of the minor leagues were becoming less relevant for player development. They were sort of, you know, guys were being identified uh, pretty early, like who can play and who doesn't have a major league future. And so it's sort of stringing on a, a lot of guys along uh, when, when you have so many slots in the minors keeping this false hope alive uh, that they'll make the show someday when in reality the teams maybe better than ever have a sense of who has it and who doesn't and they don't necessarily need all those uh, you know minor league um, games to be able to kind of make that determination but then at the other side of it it's like the the, the hope of minor league baseball is sort of the, the heart of baseball in a lot of ways especially in this country between major league cities you know you have uh, people you mentioned the host family I mean, it is really part of the fabric of the community to have the team there. Everything revolves around it. Uh, and, and you have, like you said, the players literally staying at the houses of people in the community. And it, it really fosters this this sense of belonging that you're sort of getting rid of when, when you cut some of those teams out. But that, that happens every I mean, there are 200 plus minor league teams in the middle of the 20th century. Do we talk about the fact that Rock Hill, South Carolina doesn't have a minor league team anymore? No, like that's just part of the that's part of what happens Major League Baseball goes through changes and it has to go through changes. And the old guard screams, no, you can't destroy the game. But then baseball just doesn't stay relevant anymore if that's the case. And I think there is something beautiful. If Major League Baseball was honest about the fact that that the minor leagues are designed for top prospects and then a bunch of cannon fodder guys, a couple of whom might make it, if they were just honest about what minor league baseball actually was, it would get a lot rid of a ton of these problems, I think. What do you think it is that keeps bringing those guys back, the, especially the cannon fodder type guys? Is it just the dream of, of, of the off chance of making it, or is it just they, they love the game, they don't really know anything um, different? Uh, for, you know, They've been playing it their whole life growing up, and, and they just want to continue to be pro baseball players? For the most part, it's all of those things combined. I mean, for me, when I was there for two seasons as a clubhouse attendant, I was trying to, my dream was to have my Rudy moments which is a big part of this book that I would have some moment where, oh, they're going to give me one at bat in a game and then I'm going to hit a home run and they'll give me a a contract or something crazy like that. And I really had a tough experience my first season. I wanted to go back because I had nothing else to do. Part of it is this unwillingness to grow up in a game that really keeps us all young. And part of it is a lot of guys, they don't know how to do it. We had a guy from the Dominican Republic. He had a third grade education because after third grade, he just only focused on baseball. He left school. He went into the academies for the Orioles in, at 16 years old. And that's all he knew how to do. Now, he got released in 2014, Jorge Rivera. And then he gets sent back to the Dominican. His visa in the U.S. is up. Who the hell knows what he's doing now? I mean, a lot of these guys in the offseason, they would be coaching kids. A lot of these guys, when they retire, they go into, oddly enough, they try to find other fraternities like other fraternal organizations similar to baseball like going into firefighting or police work but for the most part these guys have gone all in on the dream and god bless them but for most of them it doesn't work out uh, greg i'm curious uh in your time there who was the who is the player or or players you saw that it, it just took like one look and was like this guy is next level and has no business being at this level. Um, and uh, I'm curious uh, if you had an opportunity to see, you know, someone great at, at that beginning of their his career. Yeah, 2012, the Orioles' top draft pick was Kevin Gossman. Now, Kevin Gossman has taken a long time to get where he is now. But at that time, he started two games for us, and it was just obvious that he was just passing through. He... Um, he started two games. He was there long enough to sign 12 baseballs for me. I traded those baseballs to the stadium beer supplier who gave me a bunch of beer, who I then traded a bunch of <laughs> to the visiting team's coaches who gave me new caps, and then I'd get money from them, and it started this whole system. That was when, when a big player like that would come through, that was all I was thinking about was, like, how can I run some schemes to get a couple of bucks off the top? But with him... I mean, 2012 to 2021, he's having a career year this year. It's taken a long time, but uh, he looked special at that point in time. 
Okay, so final question. Do you generally think the system works and the best players go through this crucible to make it to the majors and it just sort of serves the the purpose for baseball that it's intended for? Or uh, are we potentially losing out on good players, maybe to other sports in some cases, just because of the way the minors are structured, uh, structured and how exploitative uh, it seems from the top down? Yeah, I think the example that I think of is Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson was drafted by the Rangers in 2010. He played two seasons in single A ball, bat 228, I believe. Uh, he signed for $200,000, and then he made the standard minor league salary at that level, which is $1,200, $1,250 a month. That was his two seasons in minor league baseball. In 2012, he was drafted by the Seahawks. Now, within three years of being drafted by the Seahawks, this dude won a Super Bowl. He had an $87 million contract, and he was dating the pop star Sierra. Compare that to the life he would have had in the minor leaguers, and you're telling me that you want these two sports stars to choose minor league baseball instead? It's not going to happen. So a guy like Russell Wilson, maybe Kyler Murray is another example, but those are rare scenarios, but I think it's perfectly indicative of the, the disrespectful and... The, the strange way that the rites of passage work in baseball keeps people from choosing that sport, I think. And why would somebody choose that life over the life of dating a pop star and eight, making $85 million? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and just uh, just for the record, you know, we've been a little doom and gloom on the minor leagues in this interview, but there's also a lot of fun stories in your book. So uh, definitely want to kind of highlight that as well. What was your favorite, you know, uh, of all the, the funniest things that you saw or most entertaining things that you saw that, that you wrote about? What, what was your favorite, Greg? My favorite experience, maybe in that entire that those entire two seasons, I was living in the equipment closet the second year, which is just wacky in itself. And then the, most of the coaching staff was living in the in the clubhouse as well. And one night I was blowing up my air mattress and I hear cracks of the bat in the in the uh, cages outside of the locker room. And our manager, Matt Marullo, and our bench coach, Paco Figueroa, they gave me a quick hitting lesson. We're all hammered, by the way, and we're smoking stogies. And they gave me the best hitting lesson. Matt Marullo fixed my crappy .091 swing in a matter of 10 seconds. And that, to me, later he gave me a, a bat that said Aberdeen Ironbirds on it so that I could use it when they threw batting practice to me as well. And it was these moments like I always thought that I wasn't re really a part of the team. And these moments told me, no, you're really a part of this in a certain kind of way. And it was a magical experience. And moments like that are what keep people like me and the players coming back for more, even though there are all these crazy, squalid conditions. Those little moments are enough to keep you coming back year after year. What was your setup in that closet? You had an air mattress and... Uh... Did you have any kind of a creature comfort? Did you have a fridge in there or anything? There was a, a fridge. Sink? What I would do, I had this big fridge and I would keep all of the leftovers from our spreads. And then I would have the fridge in there with all the food, an air mattress, which took out pretty much the entire closet. Um, and the smell of rosin constantly, that licorice smell of rosin permeating the air at all times. Um, no windows. I'm, I came out of it with my sanity intact. That's the only thing that counts, Jeff. That's the shocking part of it. That's great. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I would encourage everybody to go out, pick up Greg's book, Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show and uh, taking a few minutes to talk to us, Greg. Appreciate you all. Thanks for having me. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed already, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you really think about the show. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Thanks again to Greg Larson for joining us. For Jeff, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.